Welcome to Hog Planet. This is, uh, we're recording this intro to this episode a little while after we recorded the episode, just to contextualize it. First of all, it's no Dan on this one, just uh, just me, Sam, and uh, Rachie is joining me. Rachie, you want to say hi to the people? Hello. <laughs> I said hi, not hello, but whatever. Fine. Hi. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, we recorded this. Before all the uh, the protests across the country and the world broke out in response to the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, among others. So uh, we urge you, of course, to please donate to all of the foundations and bail funds and everything that we have been sharing from the show account. Obviously, uh, it's crucial to do your part at this time. But uh, hopefully this also is maybe a break from the wall-to-wall uprising coverage. I'm sure you're getting not just on the news, but also among podcasts you like. So, um, yeah, if, you, if you're sick of hearing about the Capitol Hill autonomous zone for a bit, then uh, this would be a nice break. We're talking about the movie Lovebirds with Issa Rae and Kumail Nanjiani. So it's relatively lighthearted, even though we ended up not liking the movie. It's pronounced Kumail Nanjiani. Isn't that what I said? Yes. All right. Well, I will check my privilege next time and consult my <laughs> my pronunciation manual for Pakistani names oh before. God, anyway, um, we will. <laughs> so either way, uh, we hope you enjoy this lighthearted movie or episode, which is about a rom-com movie so yeah thanks without further ado here's the episode u.s police wearing their gun all the time has an important police feel like they are never civilians, never normal people, that they're always cops, and that they're never safe without a gun. I don't think that's the most productive frame of mind for civilians who are charged with keeping our cities safe and calm. Okay, this is Hog Planet. And it's, I'm the one saying the intro now because we don't have Dan on this episode. It's just me and Rachie. Rachie, say hi to the listeners. Hi, listeners. This is Rachie. I know you wanted me back. And she's back because that's how we do crowd service here. So we're talking, we're continuing our Quarren Cinema movie watching series, watching... I would say this is probably one of the worst. Uh, this is one of the worst movies I've seen this year. Um, I don't know about like of all time, but it's a really atrocious film. It's called The Lovebirds. And it's a romantic comedy that launched on Netflix, I believe, this past Friday. 
I believe it was originally intended for a studio release, but that's not an excuse for putting out a move, a romantic comedy that sounds like it was written by like Twitter reply guys. (laughs) Yeah. I was honestly surprised to find out that this was supposed to be released in theaters. This seems very much like a made for Netflix kind of movie it stars Issa Rae from Insecure and other things, and Kumail Nanjiani from the movie he made, The Big Sick, as well as being on Silicon Valley and other shows. Also a funny comedian. But in this role, there's not much they can these two people can really do with it. Um, this movie is it's also very annoying to us because uh, Rachie and I lived in New Orleans for a while. We're familiar with the city. And this movie seems to have been written by someone who has been to New Orleans maybe once or twice. And like, I will say that that is something that happens with a lot of movies that are set in New Orleans. But in this one, it's honestly distracting how bad it, how bad it is and how weird it is that it's set in New Orleans. And we do have a favorable thing to compare it to, but I think the best way to get going on this is to just start out with the plot. I mean, Rachel, do you have anything else you want to add before we get started? Well, uh, I think what I wanted to say was that, um, you know, since the early 2000s, there has been a dearth of romantic comedies where both of the leading characters are people of color Um, When Hitch came out in, I want to say 2000-something, it was the first uh, rom-com in decades that had two people of color as the lead with Eva Mendes and Will Smith. Watching this movie, I understand why more of these films aren't made. Not that it's fair, but if you want to watch an actually good romantic comedy about um, um, an Indian-American and an African-American falling in love and living in reality and not some Twitter version of new Orleans. You should watch Mississippi Masala with Denzel Washington. (laughs) Yes. This is not the only film that has those, that demographic styling of lead or whatever. And what's interesting is I just read an interview on the New York Times with the stars of the movie. And uh, while a lot of people, while Issa Rae is an accomplished writer and has many credits to her name, this was not written by Issa Rae. This was written by Aaron Abrams, Brendan Gall, and Martin Giro, who are three white guys, number one. (laughs) Like, let's get that right out of the way. And they're all from like, they're best known for Blind Spot. And these other kind of like TV crime shows. Also, I believe um, NBC's Hannibal, which is a show that Rachel and I are both big fans of. But it's, I think that what happened with this movie is, is number one, the, and they mentioned this in the interview, Isare and Kumail got this look at this script and they looked at it and they were like, this is clearly meant to be either two white people or just non-specified. And that definitely comes through in the events of the film, even though the, the two stars said that they tried to inject, you know, what the film would be like if they, the leads were two people of color, which is becomes honestly very crucial later on, but not that crucial because again, the script is written by white guys for white actors for the most part, as far as we can tell. 
I was disturbed by how little race played into this movie because if you're going to cast the most prominent African-American comedy writer of her age in Issa Rae and similar to Kumail, he is like the number one um, Southeast Asian Pakistani comic in this country. These people are huge stars, especially within the minority community where they are creating art that stars people that look like them. And I just don't understand why you would get these two big outspoken stars about race to play in a movie where um, race is never brought up except for in the scene when they're about to get arrested, which we'll talk about later. But I don't know why... Um, they they got Issa Rae and Kumail to basically play um, a racial characters. It was really weird. Like Issa's character's name is Leilani, and you know names don't belong to any one culture anymore. But I know for a fact that that's a Native Hawaiian name, and it's just confusing because New Orleans as a city is. Its history is so steeped in racial relations and racial discrimination that to set a movie about an interracial couple with a black woman in New Orleans and never discuss race at all or like cross-cultural communications at all was really bizarre to me. And in The Big Sick, which Kumail made, he was very proud of his Pakistani heritage and it really factored into how he related with the white characters in the movie. And in this movie, all of that nuance is gone there's there's no nuance at all it could be played by literally any two actors in hollywood today which is disappointing right and so they do they do mention race occasionally but it's always kind of as an afterthought and just to give a quick synopsis of what the film is about before we get into the nitty-gritty details of the plot and of course we will have to go into the I mean, the word soy banter or soy dialogue is very overused in, uh, you know, irony circles these days. But there is no way to exaggerate the level of quippy kind of like, oh, oh, oh we're, we're doing that now. Oh, oh, oh. So that's happening. Oh, whoops. That's that's what's going on. Is uh, that a thing? Yeah. That's it's, what we're doing now. It's that's like the all the fucking dialogue and specifically it's all that the two leads say throughout the whole fucking movie. But the plot of the movie is that there it's this couple that's kind of on the rocks. They literally break up like in the, one of the first scenes of the movie and then they their lives are changed when they hit a guy with a car and then like it, it gets hijacked from there. They're implicated in a murder and they go on the run. That's the plot of the movie. So again, we're, this takes place in New Orleans, which they say all the time, but they don't really show very often, which we will get into. But they also like they keep mentioning like oh uh you think the cops are gonna uh believe an indian guy and or sorry pakistani guy and uh and a black woman uh, uh that's awkward they never even say pakistani they just say brown yeah it's true which is uh rude he could be like any kind of daisy person like they don't specify at all and back to your soy banter point what's really painful about it is we do a flash forward from their first date to present day they've been together for four years and they can only relate to each other using like sitcom quips like uh are we doing that now that's not a thing again like i think i don't know the 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 writers in this film definitely have more dramatic credits under their belt so 
I, I mean, I guess like this is what you get when you get people who are working work in the drama in the drama world to write a comedy script because their quips are it's basically all the lines that are supposed to be funny in Marvel movies. Every time that like there's not some kind of CGI action going on, all the people in Marvel movies are doing these this kind of like whoop awkward quirky banter they and literally say that during say, the movie no they say awkward like a million times in this movie <laughs> it's unbelievable so I, I either way we we've we've set the stage uh like this movie is definitely getting i think the first thing that people know about it is that it's like it's world premiere screening at south by southwest was canceled and now it's major it's it's theater release has been canceled so this is a very quarantine film and honestly if you've been following our quarantine cinema episode series we've been doing mostly movies that we really like we did children of men okja like great fucking film so i think this is the first time we've honestly indulged on something that is just truly bad like i don't know about you rachel but by the end of this movie i was just mad and i just wanted it to end i remember being halfway through it having no idea you can't tell at all where the plot is going to go or how it's going to resolve or even what's going to happen next you have no reason to care unless you really are like invested in these two characters who seem to have nothing in common or like very little characterization of them and all they they only talk in like reddit speak yes um this couple that we're supposed to care about we're given very little information we don't even know their names until a few like 10 minutes into the film so a romantic comedy, you have to be invested in the romantic leads, but they do so many um, like time jumps and quick yeah. cuts that you're not even sure where or when things are happening. And all we see from their relationship is that they're constantly bickering. Yes. We never really get to see the part that is like, oh, they're in love. They're meant to be together. So it was like two random people who shouldn't be together um, going on an adventure. But... I will say that the writers are talented because they managed to render Issa Rae and Kumail Nanjiani not funny at all. <laughs> and I think that takes some skill. Like, like we're not criticizing the leads. They are known for being funny people right. and for being rom-com people. Issa Rae's Insecure is basically um, a, a millennial uh, rom-com on HBO that I think is very well written that we're both fans of and Kumail's The Big Sick won all those accolades so it's like you're taking the two biggest stars in non-white romantic comedy and putting them in a white romantic comedy with no nuance or soul at all it's really weird yeah and I find this particularly annoying because as a, a millennial in a serious relationship, I feel like all this shit is marketed at me in the most annoying way. I could see so many like of my couple friends being like, did you guys see The Lovebirds? Wasn't that so funny? It's so cool to see people like us in these movies. And I'm... And no, I, I don't want to see anything like this ever again in my life. And if, if in, I don't know what we need to do to get to a society where we don't make movies like this anymore, but we need to do it. So... Let's start off with the plot. And of course, the plot starts with, like Rachel said, a massive time jump. Because it starts with their first date where they're being quirky. They're drinking like <laughs> liquor out of a bottle, which is in a paper, a brown paper bag in a park, you know, like Pete Booty Judge. But the thing about New Orleans is you're allowed to drink outside. <laughs> 
There was no reason for them to hide the liquor in a brown paper bag. You can get alcohol at CVS. You can get like the, um, what are they called? The hurricanes that are just slushies made with Everclear. So New Orleans is one of the few places in the country where you can drink in public. So off the top, that scene was very inauthentic and disturbing. Yeah, so like in New Orleans, you can walk into, this is weird to people maybe on like the East Coast or in any city that's not like, I I can think of only a few other cities that I know of off the top of my head that are like that where they don't have like any open container laws. Like uh, Savannah, Georgia, I think is like that and Charleston, South Carolina. But either way, like you can walk into the fucking fanciest, you can walk into Commander's Palace or some other really expensive restaurant and order a cocktail to go and they won't even blink. Like they just give it to you in a to-go cup and you can walk the fuck out with the drink. So they have, they have drive-through alcohol places. Like they have drive the drive-through daiquiris in New Orleans. Like these you can drive up to a place and buy a gigantic frozen margarita or daiquiri, whatever you want. And they, it's literally, even if you're in a car, because they put a piece of tape usually over the straw and that considers it closed. Like it's very laissez-faire down there with alcohol. But either way, so we see their first date. They're, again, they're, like they start right out the gate with just being so fucking soy talking weirdly like making these weird quips they literally the scene ends with them having this awful awful awkward kiss it's precipitated by one of them saying like is this your i want to kiss you face and they like talk about their first kiss before they actually do it awful things that no one in reality does or if they do they need to stop watching movies like this i guess because it seems like they're just trying to live up to this unrealistic standard so we skip we're four years later and they're in their apartment which doesn't look like any apartment in that anyone lives in in New Orleans. It looks like in the central business district of New Orleans, there are all these like brand new buildings and you know, there's a lot of gentrification in the city. So this is what that apartment looks like. It's a very standard one bedroom apartment that it could be in any city, but this is like such a missed opportunity. If you're going to set it in New Orleans and it is cheap to film movies in New Orleans, it's beautiful in New Orleans. It's a place with a lot of like character. There's no reason not to take it to its fullest. You can film it in like a traditional shotgun house and have like all these cool shots of them outside their house and stuff. You can make it very distinctive to the place but like they did nothing here and they it looks like they live above like a whole foods in the central business district just awful yeah and speaking from experience sam how many of our friends in new orleans lived in apartments like that that looked like high rises that could be in new york well, see, this gets to a little bit of accuracy because yeah. only transplants live there. And I mean, we're not from New Orleans. Yeah. We were transplants, but we were of the socioeconomic, you know, background where we had to rent like an old, you know, older building. I only ever lived in buildings that were like, you know, they were like houses and you had a part a part of the house. It wasn't like you lived in a high rise. It's just it's just not really a thing in New Orleans. Even though there are people that do it, it's not the average experience. And again, if you're showing like that there's just like this relatable New Orleans couple, why not put them in a shotgun house? Like it makes no fucking sense. That's how the vast majority of young people, vast, vast majority of young people in New Orleans live. You rent like a cute, quirky house that has a lot of personality, but they chose to like sand over the personality of New Orleans just to pre- 
to pre, uh, portray the most clinical version of it possible, which isn't real. And like those apartments remind me of like on Julia Street, where only people that work like the three finance jobs in the yeah. cities live. And we find out later on that they're both creatives. So it doesn't make sense that they would want to work in the central business district, the most sterile part of town. And I don't even know how they could afford one of those apartments because they're really for people that have like been brought in by headhunters to take on high position jobs in like the finance or banking industry, which is very small in New Orleans. Right. So either way, we're in this like gentrification apartment and they're arguing about they're 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 arguing, but they're joking at the same time. It's very hard to tell hard if to they're tell. angry at one another. The tone the, the tone of this movie is a huge issue, and this it sets it starts out like right here with this scene. They're arguing about whether or not they would be good at the the uh, amazing race, the reality show. And Leilani is like very angry that Gibran, uh, played by Kumail, is saying that they would not be good at the Amazing Race, and she takes it personally. Is that show even still on? I haven't heard anyone talk about the Amazing Race in like a decade. No, these people are supposed to be people who are our age. The references are super outdated. I will say, like, like even though I, I, it might still Especially be going for people of color, especially <laughs> young people. Like, I, I don't know anyone our age who watches the Amazing Race these days. Sorry if you're listening to this, you are our age and you listen to the, watch the Amazing Race, but it's just kind of like a weird reference to me. Either way. Um, but yeah, so they argue about the Amazing Race. Then they're like switched to arguing about like how Leilani can't choose an outfit because they're they're going to like some you know dinner party or something, and they're arguing about Instagram. They get in the car and they're having like uh, there's a lot of like really bad exposition through dialogue. We can find out their names and their jobs through this dialogue. We find out that Gibran is a documentary filmmaker and uh, Leilani's very mad at him because he spends all of his time just editing this documentary film and won't let her see it. Uh, we find out because Leilani sees a picture of her friends who just got engaged on Instagram. We find out that she thinks marriage is problematic and Gibran is like, oh, well, you never wanted to get married to me. Like, why Why are you jealous of them of getting married and all this like shitty, shitty, shitty exposition through dialogue. And they kind of go from, again, with the tone, they they go from, like, joking and, like, talking about, like, the amazing race to, like, really going for the throat. At one yeah. point, towards the end of the fight, uh, they, what, uh, Leilani calls Gibran a failure and Gibran calls Leilani shallow. Like, just apropos of nothing. Like, just to show that they're fighting. Like, the... It doesn't show that their relationship is like kind of falling apart. It tells us by putting these words in the dialogue that just show like, oh, they're actually fighting now, which is impossible to fucking glean from the first. Because again, we don't even know this couple. We saw their first date. Now we've jumped four years later. We don't get to at all see like when they were happy. It seems like I'm like, I was trying to think like, is this their happy phase like is this is this what we're supposed to I, it was so fucking hard to read but then so they literally break up in the fucking car and uh and they're both just like they literally think say like awkward and then all of a sudden they hit a guy with their car and then he escapes a guy with a mustache who is credited only as mustache i'm not fucking making this up gets in the car he says that he's a cop but then he doesn't show a badge or anything he chases down the guy who they hit with a car who fled the scene on a bicycle and then this guy runs the dude over multiple times at least four times he backs over the guy big time and then 
Like they never tell him to stop. They, they never. Ne they're silent the whole time. These people are sociopaths. A, a random man has commandeered their vehicle and is running over a human being on a bicycle with it. And they're just like, awkward. They literally <laughs> never say stop. Yeah. Or what are you doing? Or even take out their phones to record. They're complicit. No. And then the guy gets out of the car and flees the scene, the mu mustache. And <laughs> uh, fucking Gibran says, I don't think that guy was a cop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, um. So for me, if a random person came up to my car window in New Orleans and said, I need your car, I would at least ask to see their badge first. And the awful soy dialogue just like contributes to this very frustrating generalization that Sam and I talk about all the time, that every relationship with millennials is toxic. Like, we're we're too dumb to have empathy. We are like we're unable to have compassion because all we care about is clout. And it's ridiculous. These are people who are older than us who are literally fighting about like Instagram posts. They broke up over an Instagram post. So we get if you thought that like they were the only shitty millennials in oh, this God. movie, they run to like literally one of the worst scenes in this. I'm going to say that a lot of times because every <laughs> scene is really bad in this movie. And honestly, I, it's hard to quantify, but um, they, so like they get out of their car after like the shitty soy, like, Oh, I didn't think the guy was a cop. And then um, there's this liberal like white couple. And I looked at the, at the, the casting, they are credited as Mr. Hipster and Mrs. <laughs> Hipster. I'm not, I wish I was making this up. Um, so they're dressed like, I mean, they're dressed like Brooklyn hipsters, which like you do see in new Orleans. It's not like totally off or anything, but they like, so Jabron and Leilani, now, the first time that, like, quote-unquote race is going to come up in this movie, um, <laughs> they try to convince this, like, liberal white couple that they didn't kill the guy who's, like, dead in front of their car. Uh, even though his blood is, like, on Jabron's clothes and everything. Um, they're doing... He's an idiot. Jabron goes over to the dead body and, like, picks it up and yeah. then gets back in the car? Yeah. And, um, no, they so they're trying to convince this couple that they did not kill the guy. They're doing all kinds of shitty soy dialogue the whole time. It's not what it looks like. Uh, uh, nope. Uh, that's not a thing. Yeah. We, we, we didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, the couple apologetically, like, calls the cops on them. The couple's literally saying, because the couple's white, they're literally saying, like, like, oh, uh, we're calling the cops. Uh, there's two people here. Uh, oh, uh, they're running away. Oops. Uh, awkward. And, um, uh, we're, one of them is, uh, a woman of color. And, uh, I don't think that's why she did it or anything, but, uh, the other man is also, he's a man of color. And, uh, so it, like, we leave, like, the hipster couple with them just doing like bizarre white liberal soy banter and um this couple so so jabron and leilani run away to sunrise diner which does not exist in new orleans like whatever i'm not gonna get that mad about that it's now dark for some reason it was daytime when they hit the guy it's dark now who knows how long it took them to run they away must have traveled on foot which in new orleans is not that easy yeah <laughs> yeah it doesn't look like so they were in like the central business district and now it looks like they're just like in the suburbs for some reason at this like <laughs> diner it, it's bizarre uh they sit down and order i i wish i was making this up <laughs> they order two alcohols and like <laughs> and the, the weird the weirdest part like as if ordering two alcohols wasn't unforgivable enough the restaurant does not have alcohol which again in new orleans unheard of i'm sorry like 
It is so much more common to find a bar that does not serve food than a restaurant that does not serve alcohol. It is so fucking rare. Like, someone in the kitchen will throw you a beer if it's really that bad. Like, I... I I don't understand it. Especially a 24-hour diner because New Orleans doesn't have, like, rules like you can't buy alcohol after a certain time. And I remember watching that scene. I asked you, like, Sam, when we were in New Orleans, did you ever go to a restaurant that didn't have a liquor license? And you were like, no. No, straight up. I I can't think of very uh, – And you went to college there. Other than, like, uh, I don't know, like a a small stand or something, basically every place sells alcohol. It was very weird to me. Um, so either way, while they're there, they are like, what are we going to do? And like, they want they want, they debate like going to the cops as witnesses. And of course, like Leilani's like, oh, how do you think they're going to react to two POC, uh, who claim that they committed a mur- or claim that they didn't commit a murder, but it looks like they did. And then they like do this like awkward, like, um, role play <laughs> where like, where, where Leilani is the cop and Gibran is them trying to like convince the cop that they didn't murder someone literally there's like body cam humor in it it's really brutal yeah like when she thinks he's not doing a good job she's like this is me covering up my body cam so i can beat your ass and i'm like is threatening your boyfriend with racialized police violence good Again, this is like how how Issa Rae and Kumail decided to inject race into this like non totally like deracialized script. I I, don't, I I have to assume that they like improvised some of their dialogue or like had some kind of I don't think because number one the rapid fire awkwardness of their soy banter could not be it could be like outlined but it could not be written down and then delivered accurately the way they do it. I think that there had to be some level of like. Uh, creative license that they took with this and so yeah this is what they chose to do I don't, I don't know not my not what I would have done in the situation but I'm not an actor either way they get a call from the like the party that they were going to go to the dinner party who thinks that they're ditching or like lazy and this really inferior like if you the people at the yuppie party are like the 1% of young people in New Orleans like they're all they're like um, you know like dudes on Twitter that post like how come nobody be dressing anymore? And they're wearing like a turtleneck under like a pea coat. Like that's exactly how basically everyone in this party is dressed. Yeah. They're dressed like what someone who lives in New York would think that like young professionals in New Orleans look and dress like, but in my experience in New Orleans, like it's everyone there, not everyone, but most people have like a, an artistic passion and then they have their day job. The culture is really different from like New York or the East Coast. So it was bizarre to see these young people living in this huge house in New Orleans that like people only get those because they're either like generationally wealthy or they're making an like three times the median income. But these are Issa Rae's co-workers. So it doesn't make sense necessarily that they would be able to afford a place like that. And like, we were young people in New Orleans, like doing um, creative jobs and stuff like that. And 
it's just so inaccurate. Like, even people that were a few years older than me would live, like, in a shotgun house, not, like, in some palatial estate that, like, has a guest yeah. house and gas lamps. And if that's where, her, like, her co-workers live, like, more in the French Quarter, why is she in the Central Business District in this, like, sanitized, no-personality apartment? And another thing I wanted to talk about was, like, even at this point in the film, there's no chemistry between the two leads. You know how, like, we don't see the ups and downs of their relationship, just the downs. Yeah. They hate each other. Yeah. <laughs> they hate each other. And they hate each other in, in that they just keep doing this weird soy banter with one another. Like, that's how they argue. It's it's unbelievably bizarre. And honestly, like, the, like, like Rachel's been alluding to, yuppies in New Orleans are, like, they're there, but they're not really to use soy banter they're not really a thing like <laughs> a lot of people in new orleans are creatives you can still kind of make it as a creative in new orleans and have like a side job in the service industry and stuff and i don't know maybe it's just the circles we ran in but like that was like the vast majority of my friends who were there or like even people i know who are still living in new orleans uh even if they were from somewhere else they tended to end up like falling into that kind of like employment line the yuppies in new orleans i, I don't know very many of them and i should i mean i went to tulane I should know all the yuppies in New there Orleans. There are way less yuppie jobs in New Orleans than I think anywhere else, just yeah. by like the nature of its location and what historically its industries have been. But Gibran and Leilani don't seem to have a good relationship. They don't seem to have anything in common and they're constantly fighting. Like even when they're on the run together and need to work together, they're still bickering with each other. Right. So, so yeah, the, the the scene of the interior of the yuppie party really had me going. And either way, so, so after they get the call from the yuppie party, they get, they get a call from a detective, I guess the New Orleans Police Department detective, who found their car and wants to ask some questions. Leilani tries to do a ruse and be like, oh, we're at home. Uh, honey, honey, yeah, soy ruse. <laughs> They're like, honey, did you? Isn't the car parked outside? And um, they try to like badly act their way through this, but then Jabron just like smashes her phone and decides and is like, no, we're gonna go on the run because again, we're like two POC. We can't be. We can't deal with the cops on any level uh, because of like some vague racism. And oh, I mean, the other thing I want to note mention about this is that there is not a Louisiana accent to be heard in this entire movie. Nobody. Everyone talks like they're from. I, I don't know, like like Los Angeles or New York, they don't sound like they're from New Orleans. And New Orleans is a place where people have really, really, really thick accents. <laughs> like And deep roots. Like Leilani is African-American and there are a lot of African-American families, obviously in New Orleans, that have been there for decades, that have generations. built generations, centuries. centuries, yeah, that have made the, that part of the country their home and have been able to build homes and raise their families there so we don't even know if they're both transplants who happen to meet in new orleans at the exact same time which seems unlikely or if any of them are supposed to be natives and in leilani's case especially like in my experience living in new orleans and working with other black women they are very proud of their heritage they're very proud of where they live and where their family has grown them up and what schools their kids go to so there's none of that to Leilani. And again, you can really tell that this was written for white people or racially ambiguous people because they only mention race in relation to the cops. Right. Yeah, the, their injection of race into this is just like, oh, we can't go to the cops because we're brown or something. Um, 
And so they, they get the call from the detective who found their car. <laughs> they, they, they try to do the ruse, but Gibran just smashes their phones. They run from the cops, yada, yada. They go to the waterfront park in the French Quarter in New Orleans, which is a very famous place. It's right across the street from the <laughs> cathedral that you see on like literally every picture of the French Quarter of New Orleans, like right across from Jackson Square. They throw their phones, I guess the other phone they had, in the water. And they but have... The thing is, like, they keep on... Okay, a common thing that they keep doing in the movie is like pretending to act normal in public. In New Orleans, it's it's not weird to be out late at night. It's not weird to be no. out at the riverfront with your boyfriend and they're like, "Oh, uh, we're normal. White man walking his dog. Nothing to see here." And it's like yeah. <laughs> No one <laughs> They're acting like they're in like a a, a Tony suburb <laughs> when they're like in like the the uh, oh my god the waterfront park in New Orleans in the French Quarter is like the busiest possible place at midnight yeah, like there are tons dark, of exactly yeah more people go there when it's dark <laughs> yeah there are people like it's right in the French Quarter like people again you can walk around <laughs> with drinks in your hand like people are walking up and down the park there are families and like tourists there there are like revelers and and even more infuriating is that it appears. I don't know if they just do this because, like, New Orleans, they use the same fucking stock images over and over again, even if they, like, literally film on location. But there are, like, people with beads and stuff. So, like, I'm, like, thinking, I'm, like, is it Mardi Gras? During, Mardi Gras during the French Quarter? There are a ton of people. And there's, like, basically yeah. nobody on this waterfront and park. outside of Mardi Gras, people do not walk around wearing beads. That's a common misconception. But, like, you don't do that. Yeah. No, even, like, the goofy tourists in the French Quarter, I, I don't know. So they throw their phones in the water. They continue to have like annoying dialogue about trying to escape the police. And so then they like they take an Uber somehow. And I, at this point, like the logistics make really confusing. I'm like, I guess he's they're using the that man's phone? they're using the dead guy's phone. I think like the How? guy who got hit by the car. Like, I, do they know his passcode? Because that's a plot point later. Yes. Is no. <laughs> No, they're using it, but like they, we have no idea how they got into the phone or anything. We have, we have literally no fucking idea. Nope. So they get into an Uber pool. It, again, like, so they pick someone up. There's like nobody on the streets, which is, again, rare oh, for French Gras. Quarter. And especially if it's during Mardi Gras, it's really unheard of. They're driving like through the French Quarter, which, again, during Mardi Gras, they block off like sections of it for parades and stuff. I mean, 200 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> No, there's no, it's so weird and unrealistic. And um, there's one scene where she yells at the people in the, who get in the Uber hoop pool. Cause they're like a young flirty couple. And they're like, Oh my God, I love you so much. I think literally the man says, I love you more than I love my mom, which is something that no one has ever said on earth in a romantic situation. Um, so either way, Leilani like calls him out. It's like your romance isn't going to last. And like this, you know, outburst is supposed to be very comedic. It just does not land. So then they go to another real location which is the Dragon's Den on Esplanade, which is uh, just between like the French Quarter and the Marigny in New Orleans. And they're there because they saw on the dead guy's phone that he was supposed to meet with this person, Edie. Yeah. And um, so they go into the Dragon's Den, which is at 
I would say the Dragon's Den that as they portray it has about 50% of the amount of people that would normally be there on like a Thursday afternoon. Like it, I've been to the Dragon's Den multiple times and it's always fucking packed. There, I didn't even know what the, I couldn't evaluate whether the decor inside the Dragon's Den was accurate because I just genuinely have never really seen it. It's always just slammed with people. They're also playing like an ain't a big Frida song on the air ways that came out just like fucking years ago which really drove home the point that i thought of which is like whoever made this movie or wrote it or did all these like made these design choices has been to new orleans maybe once like they it seems like they went once and they remembered like two or three things and they're like i should put them in a movie set my whole movie in new orleans and no one will notice the difference so either way um they meet up with Edie. And Edie Who is dressed like a ser- like fucking Carmen San Diego. <laughs> She's supposed to be incognito because we find out like who she is later. She's literally wearing a fedora and a trench coat and sunglasses and being like, "Are you here for the drop?" Yeah, no, it's like the worst kind of like shitty fake crime dialogue. And Edie is played by Anna Camp as well, doing a very bad accent, honestly. Just not there. Again, there's not a single Louisiana accent in this whole movie, which is set entirely in New Orleans. Uh, so Edie like double crosses them for I, I don't know they don't even know what Edie's about they don't know why the dead guy died they're trying to like piece this together and um, this means that like the the writers don't have to do any work really to tell you what's going on because the characters don't know what's going on you're supposed to be like in their shoes or relate to them for some reason because you are a millennial couple of color and you uh, talk like a fucking moron all and the time you hate each other you hate each other and you have no idea what's going on like it's that's what's that's where we're at and um we so either way Edie captures them and takes them to like her house which looks like it's in the suburbs in like metairie louisiana they wake up in a barn somehow (laughs) no they wake up in her barn this is when we first find out what leilani does for a living she works for an ad agency again like very nondescript kind of vaguely creative job yeah and jabron talks about how um Basically, her biggest achievement at work has been working on an Axe body spray type product where um, a nerd sprays the product on himself and then the girls want to fuck him. And she's like, it's based on a true story. In college, there was a nerd who smelled bad. And then when he smelled better, I fucked him. And then um, Jabron in what I'm supposed to be funny is saying like tearfully like, yeah, she fucked that guy. She fucked the shit out of him. Again, like th- we're supposed to think that these people have chemistry, but neither the performers nor the people that they are portraying all have any chemistry whatsoever. So either way, Edie has them tied up and they're like doing all this like shitty beta dialogue. And um, they find out like, because sh- again, we only find out the plot points through dialogue and, and only vaguely. They find Edie's like, you're fucking with a congressman right now. Like, and so we have no idea. Also, Edie calls Gibran Mr. Bing Bong and another ham-fisted way to try to inject race to this script that was not meant to like deal with race at all. I will say that's the one time I laughed in the movie, but just because I think the phrase Bing Bong is funny. Right. And you're laughing at the dialogue, not with it at all. 
all. Yeah. Anyway, um, so Edie asks, because they're like supposedly they've angered this congressman, which we will vaguely find out about later on, um, Edie is going to like torture them. So she asks Gibran if he wants the door or the grease. And she has, by grease, she means there's like a, a pan that's filled with like four strips of bacon, but the pan is entirely filled with oil for some reason. Like they, yeah. they put like full on lard into the pan for some reason <laughs> or something. I don't know. An absurd amount of fat for four slices of bacon is in the pan. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Um, so he's like, oh, I choose the door because, you know, soy humor, like, oh God, like, uh, I, the, the door at least isn't hot and boiling or something like that. And, um, he, he, the door behind the door, there is a horse which kicks Gibran in the chest at like point blank range. And he's like, ow. But then for the rest of the movie, he's basically fine. He then like, uh, while he's like knocked out, he's, he soyfully urges Leilani to take the grease instead. Um, so then like. Edie's about to hit Leilani with the grease and he's somehow able to kick the grease pan away from her and cause it. Despite being a cuck the entire movie, like he's jealous of every man Leilani has ever even looked at. (laughs) And just on the, the bacon grease point, like Kumail Nanjiani is from Pakistan, a country that is majority Muslim to threaten a person from a majority Muslim country with pig grease seems to me like maybe a hate crime. They never explored that dimension. He's just like, I don't want the grease. Yeah, or like, I mean, Leilani's a black woman who's tied up in these like people's houses. They clearly look yeah, like the descendants white people of people are threatening to disfigure Leilani, a black woman, in their opulent family home that they clearly have had since slavery times. But none of that is is mentioned and that begs the question why set this in new orleans if you're going to ignore the historical impacts like a black woman being tied up and being threatened with like facial disfigurement and burning her body in new orleans like that would have been a rich way to explore race by being like you know these connections in the past this is why it's so bad but it's all written for comedy and it's hate crimes yeah and and it seems like something that even though they don't mention it in the they don't br- like get into this dimension in the in the movie it seems like something that like maybe Issa Rae would bring up like in an interview after the fact to try to like retcon like because again the script was not really written with them in mind so I, I could see her using it as a way to like retcon like oh I, this is how it's it's uh, timely or about race or something and that's why yeah, I would be like this was a callback to that yeah. literally famous um, I don't remember her name I think it was Madame LeVay or something in New Orleans who was famous for disfiguring Figuring and murdering her female black slaves to like use their bodies for beauty products. So I think you're right that she could retcon it and be like, oh, this was a reference to that. But it it's not really because race never comes up unless they are having a soy banter about the cops not believing them. Exactly. So Either way, he's able to, like, because, I guess because when the horse kicked the chair that Gibran was sitting on, it, like, broke the chair. So he's able to wiggle his way out, and, you know, he's not tied up anymore, and he can kick the grease pan out of Edie's hand, and then they escape from the barn, and then they, like, 
it looks like it's in Metairie somewhere. They run Metairie is like the suburbs of New Orleans. They run all the way to another real location, <laughs> the Nola Discount Pharmacy, which is in Metairie. So I guess like conceivable that they could have run that far. Uh, they run there. They they put on clothes. Well, it looks like they're gonna steal them, but then like they pay for them later. Um, they, well, they put on the clothes without paying for them, and then have the white cashier scan like the ass price tag on the leggings and stuff. And I have a question for you, Sam, because this Kumail stuff that he's pulling, like breaking Leilani out of her um, bindings and things is, I feel like this was before Kumail's like action star body. So it's less believable. I feel like it was like maybe halfway through, but still not that believable for me. So he, um, uh, apparent there are, I did see an article that was like how jacked do we think Kumail because Kumail is like getting jacked for some Marvel movie or something and people are like oh how could a comedy guy be muscular at the same time that's so weird mm-hmm. and um either way so he's like he's fit looking in the movie but like I, I don't know it's still kind of weird anyway yeah. they're they're in the store buying clothes and there's literally a scene where he says she's like do I look stupid and he's like no you look like the opposite of stupid you look unstupid it's supposed just, to be romantic right you will roll your eyes just so much watching this so then they go to the storeroom in the back and they have like a moment I don't know why they have to do this because they're Another intending thing, to buy the clothes Sam, um have you okay New Orleans is different from the East Coast And because of, like, the fact that, like, all pharmacies sell liquor, um, and sometimes people drink it in the store, I've done it, sorry, um, they do not let, you cannot even get into the bathroom for customers without talking to, like, the manager, getting a passcode, putting in your social security number. So the fact that they were able to break into the employees only area was really odd and also unexplained. That doesn't happen in New Orleans. And they also do it for no apparent reason because it's not like they're going to steal the clothes. Like, they eventually pay for the clothes, but they just they have this moment in the storeroom. It wait, makes wait, no wait. sense. So, okay, they threw away their phones, but they're still using their credit cards, which can be tracked? I, I assume. I, I, maybe they're paying with cash. Like, it's no, not... No, 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 they weren't. <laughs> I don't know. It's not explained. Uh, honestly, that's not the biggest plot hole. <laughs> but either way... They, whatever they they close the transaction they're wearing like very goofy clothes and that's supposed to be funny for some you know it's it's, it's funny when people wear I weird like looking for clothes New Orleans the outfits aren't even that bizarre she's True. wearing like brightly colored leggings and a unicorn hoodie like that's not out of the ordinary for New Orleans like New Orleans has tons of adult goths no one would blink an eye at that outfit I I I actually think they that um she was wearing like purple leggings and he was wearing like a goofy like purple polyester like bomber jacket which is literally mardi gras clothes like (laughs) it's like the one city where you can wear like yellow purple and green and people are like cool a camo baseball cap that said blessed on it and i was like that's the least suspicious thing you would wear if you were wanting to blend in that's what you would wear are you kidding me that's what everyone in metairie louisiana is fucking wearing it's it's ridiculous that that's like uh, uh, even a plot point anyway so they go they get outside they're waiting for an uber they're talking about their first date uh where they saw a couple that didn't talk to one another for some reason they've never reminisced about this they've never reminisced about their first date they've been together for four years whatever east uh 
Leilani wonders if the couple was instead of the, she's thinking like, oh, I thought that because they weren't talking, they were miserable, but maybe they were just comfortable with one another, which I, again makes no fucking sense. It, it, it's a total non sequitur. It doesn't come up ever again. <laughs> and so their Uber is arriving again. Like, how do they order an Uber? We don't know. It doesn't matter. Phone. Also, they take like 15 fucking Ubers in this movie. Like, yeah, and if you're on the run from the cops, Using Uber is not a good idea. It literally tracks your location. Yeah, where you're picked up and where you were dropped off. It's the worst thing to do if you're on the run from the cops. It doesn't, it doesn't fucking, especially if you're just, what if you're using a dead guy's phone? Anyway, <laughs> I, I don't want to even like spend time on this because we're already going long. Um, so the, the, oh my God, this was such a shitty scene. So while they're waiting for the Uber, a cop like pulls into the parking lot of the NOLA discount pharmacy and they, the cop, they have like this tense stare down and like, oh, is the cop here to arrest us? Are, is the cop going to discriminate against us because we're brown? Yada, yada. And like, no, it does, the cop just parks and, and, and there's, it's just, like a scene that's thrown in there to like add some kind of weird racialized tension that otherwise would not exist in this movie they so they've they've Gibran reveals that he while in the scuffle with Edie they found an address and so again they're trying to like piece together what's going on and I guess they think that like if they solve the crime then the police can't suspect them of doing the crime whatever Uh, I mean it's a comedy it doesn't the plot doesn't need to be that like strong but even for like a comedy plot this is really just weird and confusing and it's also if it's gonna be a comedy it has to be funny to make up for the lack of plot but we don't get either of that here so Gibran reveals they go to this address um that they found that's what they're taking the uber to they argue about how to break in jabron reveals that he saw an episode about how to break glass with a high heel and leilani he said he saw an episode of Mythbusters about how to break glass with a heel these references are so dated again just by the way <laughs> yeah show that millennials love miss myth busters and leilani says oh you like reality tv shows now and like uh, alluding to the idea that like he he did not like them or said that he did not like them in the past or something again this is like because of their amazing race fight in the beginning of the movie she's like oh so you won't go on their rape amazing race but you like to watch other reality shows which is like yes that makes perfect sense yeah. you don't watch reality shows just because you want to be on them like like we watch Knife or Death, and <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be on Knife or Death, <laughs> even though it's a great reality show. But again, like the characterization of just sh- telling us what we're supposed to know about the characters, rather than showing us how they interact with one another. Because if you if you relied on what they show us, they have nothing in common and they hate one another. But then they like, of course, it's a rom com. So over the over the like course of the film, we start to reveal things about their character and they start to resolve their relationship or something. So this is like an example of that. And um, either way, of course, like Gibran is is extremely beta. <laughs> And is he he is unable to break the glass with her shoes. He breaks her heel instead. And she says, like, uh, oh, you broke my date shoes. And he says, like, oh, I didn't know you had date shoes, which was, again, just such an a fucking infuriating line. Like, I'm sorry if you're so unaware of your like fucking live like you live with a woman and you are unaware of like the differences in her outfits. Like you, you are not dating like you're not you're not in a relationship. This is it's not. 
it's not happening. Like you're friends maybe, but you're not in a relationship. It's just so fucking weird. Again, like we're supposed to believe that they've been together for four years, like living together. And he doesn't know that she had date shoes. It's just bizarre. So either way, they, they can't break the door, the glass door or whatever. So they climb a fire escape. Then they break a different window, which again happens in the most like, cucked like beta way possible he's like doing these like baby punches to break the window and they're like shocked when the window window actually breaks it's awful so they're sneaking around like in a what looks like an apartment again like i have no idea where this takes place this part they're sneaking around an apartment and they head towards music that they hear and they're they find all these frat bros who for some reason live in apartments instead of like in a frat house um they find frat bros and they're like stuffing photos into envelopes and they say like oh is that what Edie was talking about which again like we don't even know what Edie was talking about all this she said was that they were fucking with a congressman so we have no idea why they're stick stuffing stuff into envelopes it doesn't matter he wonders uh Gibran wonders if he is able to use the word fuck boys to describe the frat bros which like again the references like this is just so weird and dated I I, I don't know why this is a thing I, I don't even think frat bros are like the definition of fuck boys as used on like the internet I, I don't know maybe you can shed some light on what a fuck boy is Rachie the interesting thing is like literally in Insecure by um, Issa Rae's most famous show, which is still airing today, like they talk about fuckboys. <laughs> it's 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 not a term that anyone our age would be hearing for the first time in 2020. And I was also confused because frat boys, in my experience, are like wealthy, um, upper class individuals who wouldn't need to be working for a blackmailer to get cash. Right. Which is what we find out that the frat bros are doing. So uh, like they get they're They're like, again, they're, so they're like snooping around this apartment and one of the frat bros finds them. And Gibran has like, we keep overusing this word, but just the most soy fight with the frat bro. And like Leilani's in the back, like throwing books at them in a comedic <laughs> way to like contribute to the fighting. I don't know. Um, they, they eventually subdue the frat bro. They're interrogating him, but they don't even know what to ask him because, like, no one knows what's going on at all. Uh, of course, Leilani has, like, again, injecting race into this somehow, has, like, all these little quips. She calls the frat bro Little Brett Kavanaugh, which is pretty fucked up given, like, what they do, what happens to the frat bro. Um, the frat bro reveals that they stuff envelopes at the orders of Tom, who we think is the guy who was riding the bike, who is supposedly a crazy environmentalist. And if this sounds weird to you, like, it is weird. Why, why are frat bros who, as you said, are usually upper upper class like frats are a very like upper crust society thing like the frat bros tend to be rich kids why are they working for like an environmentalist it doesn't make any fucking sense because they just didn't care about fleshing out the plot at all the but we find out now we see in a cutscene that the killer the mustache guy who you know from back when they ran who the guy who ran over you know the dude on the bike that started this whole thing is in the house that they are like investigating this guy shoots Lil Kavanaugh 
uh, the frat bro with a silencer, and the here our heroes Jibran and Leilani hide in a closet, and they're able to escape again. So now they're taking the streetcar for some reason, the New Orleans streetcar. Sam, did you mention that they watch the young frat boy get murdered and have no emotional yeah. reaction to that either? True. They're sociopaths. No, they don't care. They're just like oh, they like don't they don't do anything. It, they don't. I mean, I guess they're like ostensibly hiding, but they. Beyond that, they just seem to have zero reaction and beyond like a generalized sense of like awkward. But either way, so now they're on the streetcar. They've escaped the house. And all of these, it seems like these shifts are happening really quickly because they do happen really quickly. Um, Leilani switches from calling the the frat bro Lil Kavanaugh to calling him date rape, which is pretty fucking weird given that they broke into his house, beat the shit out of him, and got him killed. <laughs> but whatever. Um, they're worrying that the cops are going to think that they're serial killers, but they look at the blackmail photos, which they managed to steal from the frat bros. Because I guess, I, like, we're not explaining the plot well because the plot is not explained well. Supposedly, the photos of the frat bros are stuffing is like blackmail against a congressman. Whatever. And in the photos, the it, it, the it's people like upper crust people in like suits and stuff wearing like the hackiest eyes wide shut kind of masks, and um. And I think an interesting point about that, which brings up the point that we're always asking, why was this set in New Orleans? Is like having um a mask in New Orleans is not unusual. Like one of the biggest things that like tourists buy are the Mardi Gras masks. Yeah. This is taking place during Mardi Gras, and they're like, oh my god, we have to wear a mask. How bizarre! It these people seem like they never left their apartment and never took part of any of New Orleans like nightlife or social life at all. Yeah, in they're in. So weirded out by it. In the city that is probably the most, where it has the most like masquerade balls of like any city, they are supposedly these photos of people at a masquerade ball are like very scandalous. It's so, it's just bizarre. So now they're trying to get into the dead guy's phone, but suddenly they like can't get into it for some reason. They apparently, I, I assume, because they, I, I'm pretty sure they smashed their phones or threw them into the river, that they've been using this phone the whole time to like meet with. Edie and take Ubers and everything but either way so now we have a new quest they want to go to uh what is it Leilani's co-worker is this IT guy named Keith and they want him to unlock the phone but Gibran is like oh I've seen the way you look at him because again he, he's extremely cucked and thinks that like East, or, uh, Leilani is trying to bang like every man <laughs> in his orbit and um, either way so they go to apparently we find out that Keith is the guy who has the kind of the yuppie dinner party that they've been blowing off all night so they go to his house and his house I'm pretty sure I've seen this it's like in the French Quarter, there are there are some houses that um, they have like oil lamps and stuff, and they have a lot of exposed brick, and they're supposed to look very kind of lived in and like homey, but they are prim- primarily owned by like investment bankers, like they are owned by like the richest people who don't live in New Orleans or like keep that as like a summer house or something. It's like a big part of gentrification in the French Quarter specifically over the past like 20, 30 years. And again, like you could have just showed us an average shotgun house and have it be like relatable on like some tiny level. But again, we have to go to like this uh, dinner party, which has just the one percenters of new Orleans apparently. And, um, 
So they, they walk in and they're like obviously they're wearing weird clothes and their like faces are all fucked up from like getting all these fights and they claim that they're bloody from taking boxing classes. Um, they do an awful ruse where Gibran is trying to get into his phone to show him a boxing video, but he can't. He's like, oh, I can't log in. And they're trying to like get Keith to you know use his IT skills to unlock the phone. Which like what is he like a fucking like? Co- Didn't the FBI have to hire like some insanely high level? Co- Codebreaker to get into the uh, San Bernardino shooters phone yeah. and stuff like yeah. it's not like that easy to do. It's not just like your average IT guy can do it. Um, either way, it doesn't make any sense. So and the ruse, of course, switches midway because they're so bad at like, keeping up these ruses. It's like, oh, uh, I can't remember my password. Oh, I need to call a doctor. I have a head injury. Oh, I uh, can't remember my password to call the doctor because I have a head injury. And either way, they're like. Keith mercifully is like, I'm going to unlock their phone. And the other thing I wanted to mention about this scene is that Keith is like minimum five years older than Jabron and Leilani. Like the, <laughs> it's really distracting to me, but whatever. I mean, it's conceivable. If they're still friends despite the age difference, but uh, Keith is like now unlocking the phone and he's like talking tech with Jabron. Jabron's like trying to keep up cause he's like very emasculated by the fact that Keith is like this cool IT guy or something. <laughs> The code, literally, we see on screen that the code to the phone is one, two, three, four, which is (laughs) just so fucking weird and lazy. Um, And in another room at the party, Leilani is having a heart-to-heart with her friend, Rhea. She reveals to Rhea that Gibran and her broke up, which is fucking weird. Like, why are you showing up? If you're trying to keep up this ruse that, like, everything's normal, why are you showing up to a dinner party with your ex, like, boyfriend? Especially if you broke up, like, literally today, which is what happened. Why would that whatever it doesn't matter it's just glossed over like many other weird plot holes um each of them reveal that they thought that the other had like the perfect instagram relationship they had this kind of like boring millennial dialogue they so eventually so whatever the plot advances we got into the phone we have an address that is in the phone and jabron says so he's like again they're trying to keep up this ruse that like jabron has to see the doctor and he's like oh i've gotta go see the doctor but he's at a fancy gala so uh can we borrow fancy clothes from you and literally Rhea complies like she's like sure no problem and like she gives leilani a dress and then and jabron get comes out in like a fucking fitted tux which that again the female friend somehow just had right the the man they didn't ask Rhea's like husband or whatever if he could borrow his clothes and like why would they be the exact same fucking like suit size it doesn't make any sense at all but who cares again and see the husband he's like at least six inches taller than Kumail. Yes, right, because he's like emasculated by him. The fact that he's like a tall <laughs> IT guy. But this is never. It doesn't matter. It, uh, we don't care. They're in their nineteenth Uber of the fucking evening. They reminisce uh, because they left the dinner party. So they reminisce about what they say is their song, which this is uh, like it just gets more and more infuriating. Their song that they listened to four years ago when they started dating was "Firework" by Katy Perry, which came out like. <laughs> I, that came. I looked it up because it came out ten years ago in fucking two thousand ten. Like uh, either they're like super late on the curve, or the the writers just don't fucking care. Like they just, which I think is more likely, they just don't fucking care. So they're on their in their Uber to go to. They're not actually meeting up with the doctor. Obviously, they're going to meet to to the address that they found, which is 
actually this location of the hacky eyes wide shut party, you know, the, the scandalous masquerade ball. And honestly, like, as we discussed, this is like the one city on earth where it's reasonable to have a masquerade ball. There are tons of them, especially around Mardi Gras. And everyone there is dressed a lot more scandalously than this. Like those at the, at the dinner, at the uh, masquerade ball that they go to in this movie, everyone's wearing like a suit and tie and just the most boring eyes wide shut mask. Like not, (laughs) Like fr- usually, ma- Mardi Gras masks and masquerade masks, and they in New Orleans, like party city masks. They're not personalized at all. Right? No. Normally, if you go to a masquerade ball, people have like really frilly, colorful, bedazzled, like wild. People take a lot. A lot of people make their own costumes. Like it's something people take really seriously there. I mean, John Bell Edwards, the governor of Louisiana. We we talked about this. He literally has had events in strip clubs. Like it is a city where it's not at all scandalous for politicians to go to masquerade balls. If anything, it's like expected of them. And uh, but whatever. Like we're there. We're presumably thinking that we're gonna like that. That like we're at the party that the the what the frat bros and the environment are using to like uh, blackmail a congressman or something uh, again we don't even know because they're again they're, they're trying to find out what's going on but it means that we as the audience have no fucking idea what's going on which is a terrible way to go through the film and so they sit down in this auditorium at the masquerade ball and they're wearing masks so they're like blending in and uh, they're like talking to each other like quipping from under the mask in the middle of the proceedings they the the what begins then is an auction and this auction is to determine like which people get to go up and have group sex on stage <laughs> um and this of course like leads them to have this like soy frisky dialogue of like oh he's putting in work and stuff like that oh. which is which is unfortunately fucking revisited at the end of the film uh they make a consent joke in the middle of it too which is unforgivable millennial humor <laughs> um so then in this super hacky eyes wide shut like reimagining the 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 master of ceremonies is like we have imposters in our ranks and he tells everyone to reveal their faces but obviously like the only people dumb enough to take off the mask at the masquerade ball would be the two imposters so that's what happens to Leilani and Gibran if I were an imposter, I would look to see what the other people are doing first before I did it. But they're so stupid that they instantly just take off their masks and reveal themselves. But they're so so then like they you know the eyes wide shut people. I think like it, it's called like the Sacrarium or something. Yeah. <laughs> really fucking hacky. And um, all these I guess masked people are like rushing Gibran and Leilani, and we think we're supposed to think like oh it's the the end. They're going to be torn limb from limb. But there's an alarm that tells everyone to evacuate. Everyone leaves except for <laughs> Gibran and Leilani. And then the cops come in and just arrest Leilani and Gibrani because they're the only people still at the <laughs> fucking thing, which make it, again, weird. Um, so they're now in police custody. They're about to be interrogated when, um, I, like, this is, again, if they're going to inject race into this, they're now, like, two brown people in the custody of the New Orleans Police Department, like, Criminal justice in Louisiana is a fucking shit show. It has one of the highest incarceration rates in the world. Um, and and it's, it is heavily racialized. I think you're like eight times more likely to go to jail in Louisiana if you're black and like three times more likely if you're Hispanic than if you're white. Like uh, if they wanted to inject race, this would be like the place to do it, but like, it doesn't happen. And honestly, like, I, I mean, th- it, realistic to New Orleans, a lot of the police officers are black, but like, it doesn't fucking matter. It's just, they just, they don't like 
take it to that place that if you were to ask, you know, uh, Issa Rae and Kumail in an interview in the New York Times, if you were to ask them what the movie's about, they'd be like, oh, it's about being, you know, racialized in Louisiana, which it's not because it just doesn't fucking happen in the movie. I think you have a good point that there are a lot of um, police officers in New Orleans that are black, but I think they made a very conscious choice to have the lead detective who is like after Leilani and Jabron be a black woman so it could be woke. Um, I, <laughs> you know, I don't know how many black female detectives there actually are in the NOPD. I'm sure there are some, and like, I mean, they're still pigs, but like, good for you, I guess. But it, it, it's unusual, you know, it's it's just unusual. And I think that um, trying to do a woke rebrand of the New Orleans Police Department, which like has wrongly incarcerated uh, thousands of especially black men at this point. I don't know why that's a part of the movie. The, the NOPD was like shooting people in the streets during Katrina. <laughs> like, I don't know why we need like a, yeah, like, like you said, like kind of like a lady boss detective to, I don't know, maybe it's to like, cause this is when the tension starts to deflate a little bit, but then it ramps up later because there's no sense of pacing in the script. Um, so they're about to be interrogated by the lady boss detective. Leilani confesses to, uh, to Gibran that she snuck into his office and watched the documentary that he's been working on and she compliments him on it and says that it's really good despite the fact that earlier she was calling him a failure because he was working on the documentary which <laughs> doesn't make fucking sense at all because yeah. like like we said in New Orleans a lot of people are creatives if you're working on a documentary film nobody there is going to be like oh well why don't you get a real job like yeah, it's just loser. not going to happen it's just it's just not realistic and um so he confesses that he always thought that she had her life together and felt intimidated. You know, none of this is clear from their actions at all leading up to this. Um, it's just, they have to reveal it through dialogue because it's, it's just the acting is not there. They're not able to, like, show the, the dynamics of their relationship. Um, the cops are, like, watching them through one-way glass, and they have some awful dialogue. Like, one of them says, they should break up. And the other is like, you know, relationships are a motherfucker. <laughs> I don't know. Either way. Um, so the female detective walks in, our lady boss detective. <laughs> she reveals that they were actually trying, trying. the cops were actually trying to track down Leilani and Gibran because they're witnesses to the murder. They're not suspects. And the cops were actually trying to keep them safe, which, again, if we're having this like racialized idea of like uh, cops in Louisiana, uh, whatever. It does, no one, I don't care at this point. When have the cops ever been stalking a black person, tracking their movements through cell phone? And like, they were brought in at gunpoint from the orgy they escaped from. And it turns out that the, the New Orleans Police Department just wanted to keep these two minorities safe. This is a fantasy film at this point. <laughs> Again, it's clearly it was not written with like any kind of race like you know themes in mind it was written for like white or no or whatever characters it doesn't make sense but whatever <laughs> um they keep doing some, so much so, like soy dialogue like I, I have it i'm looking at my notes on this and it just there's so many points where i'm like losing my mind <laughs> literally, literally this one note says like then they keep doing soy dialogue oh my lord so much <laughs> like an ungodly amount fuck 
Um, either way, uh, oh my God, there's a scene where the, like Leilani. When being interrogated, so yeah. when they're being interrogated, Leilani starts like confessing every crime she ever did, and she's like, "Oh, uh, in the past, I sold weed brownies for my uncle," which is just like something that no one would ever bring up. Like no one, regardless of their race, would ever bring that up when they're in police custody. But who cares? In New Orleans, weed is not decriminalized at all. Oh, no. I oh, wait, wait, no, sorry. Uh, in New Orleans, it is decriminalized, but in Louisiana, broadly, oh, okay. it's really illegal. Okay. Um, sorry about that, Dan. You're gonna have to work around that. But, um, I mean, but I worked with individuals who were sent to Angola prison because they had joints in their pocket when they were picking up their kids from work. So it's not really like that much of a joking matter in my yeah. opinion. <laughs> Either way. Um, the de- detective, like, after this bizarre interrogation, where they didn't really say anything, like, about what happened. They just confirmed <laughs> the, what apparently the cops already knew, which is that they didn't do it. Yeah, what- they didn't, like, ask them any questions. They were just like, we know you're innocent. Why would innocent civilians start killing people? And I'm like, that's how most murder happens, is <laughs> civilians start killing people. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. The <laughs> so the detective lets them go home with witness protection to so that they can get some sleep. And uh, on the way home, in which this, this is not an Uber ride because they're in a car with like a cop or something, presumably. And um, they're having more dialogue. Like Jabron uh, says, like that's it. We just go back to our normal lives. Like nothing happened, which would not happen because like didn't they just break up? Like you would not go back to your normal life because uh, like. I thought that they were supposed to get back together in the middle they of this. confirmed that they broke up because Gibran is literally like one of his soy dialogue is like, uh, we broke up, right? And she's like, uh, yeah, that happened. <laughs> yeah. So again, yeah, they would not go back to living their normal lives uh, by any, not like the normal lives they led the past four years, like we're led to believe, whatever. So then we see in a, in a horrible reveal that the person, the cop driving their car, which apparently they never noticed until up to this point, is Mustache, the, the villain, the, <laughs> the bad guy. I want to call him something different, but he's literally credited as Mustache, <laughs> which, again, is like kind of unforgivably quirky, but uh, whatever. So Mustache reveals that he's a cop. And says that the person he was running over was a friend. And I'm not even going to try to relay what he continues to say. Because he just start, he doesn't really give any kind of idea of what's actually happening. It's just like, I don't know. He's a dirty cop or something. And he's going to kill them. And like, I'm not even going to try to attempt to understand it. it, it no, by this point in the movie, we're into like the last 20 minutes. I was like, come on. Like, just fucking end this. This is so awful. And... um whatever so he's gonna kill them or something he like he zip ties them and then like walks away uh leilani is able to use the cigarette lighter in the car to break the zip ties and they're able to like you know get, uh, to free themselves but they pretend to be still tied up and um mustache marches them he's driven them to like a marina and he marches them out onto the dock to shoot them in a very like you know cinematic or goofy drawn out way um they he doesn't see that their zip ties have been broken so they rush him um they have a fight scene jabron is fighting with mustache and he takes minimum like seven punches to the face, which is one of my favorite After things. After he's been kicked in the chest by a fucking horse. <laughs> yes. 
Which, yeah, he does all of his action hero shit while grievously injured. Probably has, like, multiple broken ribs. But And, and again, he's not, like, a he's a documentary filmmaker. He's not, like, a tough guy, but he's, like, trading blows with this, like, seasoned, dirty cop, whatever. Um, Leilani's able to take the gun, and but then Mustache puts Gibran in a headlock, and um, they start having this, like, awful... Like, this is, like, the, the climax of their shitty dialogue. Yes, they yes. start arguing with each other, which the argument boils down to basically, like, does Gibran respect Leilani enough to believe that she can shoot, like, the yeah. guy who's, like, about to break his neck? He keeps being on, like, take the shot, take the shot. And then Leilani is like, I can't, you in the way, get out of the way so I can shoot him. And I'm like, so your boyfriend is kindly asking you, please work on your aim so you don't shoot me. And and the reaction is soy banter. Yeah. No. So then the, it, it's life and death. And they're like, uh, don't do that. <laughs> That's not a thing. Yeah. No. Gibran is like asking her not to shoot because he doesn't think she can make the shot. She's like, you never think I can do anything. Like, uh, my <laughs> eyes were broken from rolling at this point. So eventually they work, do some stupid move. Gibran's like, oh, one, two, three, and then ducks, and the mustache is shocked, and Leilani shoots him in the chest, and he falls into like the Mississippi River, uh, very comedically, I guess. And uh, afterwards, they're in the ambulance. So like, wouldn't the movie basically restart at this point? Like, they just shot a cop. <laughs> And the po- and the police are like, oh, we got to protect you again. Like the police Listen, give them the benefit of the doubts again. In New Orleans, you might get the benefit of the doubt for like a DUI. If you kill a police officer in New Orleans, that's a felony. <laughs> Killing an officer in in the line of duty. They would both be sent to Angola. And in this case, they actually did the murder. Yes! Like in the yes! first one that they were sus- that they were worried they were going to be implicated in, they didn't like actually kill the guy. They just the guy used their car to run the dude over. <laughs> I, whatever mustache used the car to run the dude over. Like whatever. But in this one, they actually. So again, like the, you'd think the movie would just restart at this point. They'd have to go on the run, but mercifully, mercifully, <laughs> it does not restart. And we see them in an ambulance afterwards. Uh, they have, you know, like makeup dialogue. She's like, oh, you're doing the I want to kiss you face again. <gasps> and the, the I want to kiss you face, like I swear I'll stop using this word, but it's just the soy face. Like he just has his mouth like vaguely open. He looks and like a fucking emoji. Yeah, he it's it's no good. Who would want to kiss a face like that? If a man made that fa- facial expression to me, I'd run. So yeah, he makes the I want to kiss you face. And they like kiss, and then she's like, "Oh, we're about to have sex in the back of this ambulance." And and Gibran's like, "Yeah, I, I, I learned something from the orgy we saw at Sacrarium. I'm gonna put in work." And and then like when you think this film is just over, like they just fuck in the ambulance or whatever. Of course, there's like an afterwards scene where it's like one year later, and now they're they're. It, they're in the amazing race and they're winning, um, which uh, like, again, this is like goes back to their initial fight. Gibran supposedly never respected Leilani enough to believe that they could win the amazing race. And uh, and then the movie ends. I, I don't really remember what happened with the amazing race part. I was so fucking checked out. But but yeah, that's the end of the movie. Uh, fuck this movie forever. Takeaways, Rachie. 
takeaways it put me in a really bad mood and were i not about to get married in like two weeks i wouldn't believe in love anymore (laughs) this movie will uh, it is an argument against millennial romance and i (laughs) find that annoying i find it frustrating and it's like they make these movies sort of like in a lab for people like me ostensibly, but then it just it like, it's clearly not actually made for us because we don't, I don't, I didn't see myself, you know, I, okay. I'm white. So I didn't see myself racially represented, whatever, but I didn't see myself like per, my personality or my like things I enjoy or any aspect about of new Orleans, which is a city that again, like we both lived in reflected in this movie. We didn't see there's just there's just nothing there except for endless endless awful dialogue and quippy like fights that they have together and like seeing people review it and being like oh the chemistry that <laughs> that uh, Issa Rae and Kumail Nanjiani have is just something you have to see and it's no but I cannot believe that this movie was supposed to come out in theaters if you paid fifteen bucks to see this you would probably like be just fucking furious I. I, I I don't know why they had to do this. I don't know why it had like this should have been a movie with um you know it should have been like a movie with t- like the you know how they remade that that shitty date movie with um with S- Tina Fey and Steve Carell yes. like it should have been like older I don't know like older I mean like late I guess like. Issa Rae and yeah, Kumail are both late thirties, but it should have been people who would actually like, who actually, I, I don't know. I don't know who this is made for. It's like older people yeah. trying to make a movie that's supposed to be related to people our age, which it just this fucks up. This couple seemed way more jaded with each other than they should have been for people their age and in their relationship. And again, like I'm trying to remember moments in the movie where they seem to enjoy each other's company and apart from their literally first date, what, four years ago, I'm I'm struggling to come up with one. The only thing they have is the I want to kiss you face. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, oh. which again is just a soy face, but I, I don't know. I don't, I, we've beaten this to death and I, <laughs> I'm done talking about it. It is one of the worst movies ever. It's going to be something that people are going to ask me all the time. Like, oh, did you see this? Didn't you find it relatable? Didn't you see yourself in the characters? And I'm going to have to like just roll my eyes up into my head until they just disappear forever. It's it, it made me so mad how bad this movie was. And uh, we watched lots of bad stuff together. We watched lots of irony mo- movies together where we want to, you know, make fun of it and stuff, but this, this was, was just unplanned. <laughs> it was just bleak. It was just bleak. So so we had to pot about it and I'm not going to make Dan watch this. There's no reason for him to have to do it. So either way, uh, Dan, you're lucky you didn't have to, I mean, he's going to have to produce this and put this out and everything, but you know, this, I think we came in shorter than the film. So we saved him a good you know, 10 minutes and it's more pleasant to hear us banter <laughs> than these fucking weirdos who were never in a relationship together, no matter what the writers want you to think. Um, that's it folks. Uh, follow the show on Twitter, do all the stuff that Dan says at the end of every episode. He's very good at it. Um, this is available on all sound podcast things. I'm really bad at this part. 
But you should also write us a five-star review and leave out the fact that I don't know how to do any housekeeping from that five-star review. Dan's good at it, and usually he does a great job. So, uh, so yeah, this is our next entry in the Quarant Cinema series. We may do more. I mean, the quarantine's not going anywhere, so we'll be watching movies. And if people want a live commentary of a certain film, they can just hit you guys up. Yeah, we would love to do a commentary track. Obviously, Dan did a great job with the with the Hillary <laughs> documentary, uh, the the Hillary Clinton documentary that came out on Hulu, and he did it all in one shot, four hours of just pure neoliberal girl boss content, and he was riffing over it. I mean, he, it's heroic, and uh, we had to do something awful to honor his heroism. So. I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, you can follow me at Wagstank, W-A-G-S-T-A-N-K, on Twitter. Uh, Rachie, where can they find you on the internet? Impossible to find me online. <laughs> we get varying answers every time, but uh, either way, uh, it's good stuff. And uh, thanks. Have a great rest of your quarantine. Hopefully it doesn't go on too much longer, but it's better to quarantine and watch something awful or something good than to go and spread your germs around. So with that, we bid you adieu.